0: I am joined by someone with over four decades of experience. He is songwriter, entrepreneur, photographer, and author, Dave Combs. Dave has written over 120 songs and 14 albums of soothing, relaxing, instrumental piano music. And he has a lot of stories and a lot of experience, so we're going to be talking to him He has a special song called Rachel's Song, so you guys make sure you go check it out, and we're going to be talking about how and why that was written. So Dave, thank you so much for joining me today. Curtis, it's a
1: pleasure to be here with you. I'm looking forward to this. Me too. So why don't you start off by telling
0: everybody a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, again, my name is Dave Combs. I was born in the mountains of East Tennessee. I'm a Tennessee hillbilly by by birth, and was born in a family that loved music. My mother and my father both played the piano. My grandmother Combs was 80. She died when she was like 94 years old, but she was born in 1894. And she was only four foot eight, but she could make some music. Her instrument, Curtis, was the old auto harp. I don't know whether you know what auto harp is, but it's a stringed instrument where you push buttons to make a chord. And it's it's a kind of a country, bluegrass country kind of music. And so she would love to play that in the old pump organ. She back, she was back before they even had electricity in the church. She would go in and play this pump organ where you pump it with your feet to get the air moving through the organ. And she could make that thing talk. She played by ear. She she'd read a little bit of what they call shape notes music, but she could really play and sing. And of course, my father, he liked to play by ear as well. He was a great piano player and my mother could play the piano. She took lessons when she was a little girl. So I grew up around music all my early life. And of course, I was active in our church. Church music was a big part of my life with choir music and organ and piano duets and special music in the church. So I was really surrounded by people who loved to make music and appreciated music. And I my classes in school, you know, we had a our own music teacher that come would come around to the schools and teach us the old campfire songs. And, and uh, it was, if you've ever seen the movie Mr. Holland's Opus, it's a story about this music teacher that inspired a whole community. Well, I had my own Mr. Holland's Opus. His name was Uncle Pat. If you go to my hometown today and say, did you ever know Uncle Pat? Oh yeah, everybody knows Uncle Pat. He was an influence on all us kids and taught us to love music and to love to make music. So I grew up that way. And of course, uh, when I went to college, I was a math major and I was a physics minor. I was going to be a computer programmer, and that's what training was all about. And But even while I was in college, I sang in the choir, in the university choir, and directed my home church choir while I was there to make a little money to help me through school. And when I graduated from college, I started work an AT&T, or back then it was called Western Electric, that was the company, and I was a computer programmer. But in the evenings, I still would sit down at my piano and relax just playing something and directed my church choir here in, in North Carolina for a couple of years and still active with music. So music was a big part of my life, even after I grew up and got my first job with a Western Electric. and so, so that's the beginning of
0: the story of Dave Combs. Well, let's jump into, but before we get fully into the music, let's jump into the photography. You, you're also a photographer, so tell us what kind of photography you do and how you got started in that.
1: Well, again, I guess it was the influence of father. He loved photography. I remember he had he had an old. Uh, I'm sure it was an expensive camera at the time. It was a Bello- Kodak Bellos camera that folded it down and there was a it folded out in a Bellos and it used a big th- like a maybe three by five negative. It was made a really detailed picture. It was a color camera and he loved to take pictures. And of course, as soon as the instant cameras came out where you could take a picture and have it pop right out of your camera instantly. That was wonderful. You didn't have to send your roll of film off and wait a week before you got it back. But I, my mother and father, her, all our families love to take pictures at family gatherings. And so when my mother passed away, I, I got her box of photographs. And there were hundreds and hundreds of wonderful black and white photographs of the families before even I was born. And so I kind of grew up also around people that loved photography. And my favorite photography, though, is is landscape and beautiful flowers. If you go to look at my... Any of my CD covers, I did the photography for almost all of them. And those are my pictures. And if you go to my YouTube channel, you'll find lots of my photography on my YouTube channel with my music behind them. So I love taking pictures of the Blue Ridge Mountains or whether it's a sunset at the beach or just pretty flowers along a greenway or anywhere I'm looking. If I see a pretty picture like the, the cherry tree that's in bloom in the corner of our yard right now, I was out the other day taking a picture of that. So I'd love to take photographs of landscape and, and flowers and pretty objects.
0: Well, tell us about how and when you wrote your first song.
1: This was in January of 1981. As I said, when I came home from work most days, I would go down to the basement where my piano was, my grand piano, and I'd sit down and play something just to relax. And this particular evening in January of 1981, I was sitting at my piano and I started playing a song. Now, I love to play sheep from sheep music, you know, pretty songs that are your favorite kind of songs, like theme from love story, those kind of songs. But this time I just sat down and I just started playing. And what I was playing was was very pretty melody and a pretty chords and everything. And I never really thought about it. It's just one of those things where I sat down, and I played this song from beginning to end. It had a verse and a chorus, and I played it two or three times. It was in the key of C, very easy to play, very simple. And I didn't think much about it, except, you know, I liked the way it sounded and I'd play it periodically. And I, but I didn't tell anybody about it because it didn't have a name. It's just something I made up. But anyway, my wife came home from work a couple of days later and and she came in the house. I was down in the basement playing on the piano. And, and she walks over and says, what is the name of this song I've got stuck in my head all day long? You know how when you, you hear something and you, that song, just you hum it all day long. I think they call it an earworm. But she, she hummed a little bit of it and said, what is the name of this? And I said, well, Linda, it doesn't have a name. It's just something I made up. And so she got all excited and said, well, have you uh, written it down or? You know, and I said, well, no, it's in I've got it up here in my mind. And she said, no, no, something might happen to you. You better write that down on a piece of paper. And so we would have it in case something happened to you. Well, I did and still would play it, you know, periodically. We tried to come up with a name for it and nothing we ever came up with even seemed to fit the song. But then in two years later, in 1983, some good friends of ours had a little baby girl named Rachel. They asked me and Linda to be her godparents, and so we accepted, of course, and at her christening service, we were sitting there in the church listening to the minister say his beautiful, wonderful words about little Rachel, and at the end of the formal part of the service, I noticed during the service, I noticed there was a piano sitting up at the front of the church, beautiful baby grand piano sitting in the middle of the platform, so I punched Linda and I said, hey, what if if I played this song that we've been trying to come up with a name with now? It seems appropriate for this occasion. So she thought, wow, that's a good idea. So I went up to the front of the church and asked the minister and the family if it'd be okay if I sat down at the piano and played a song. And they said, of course. Everybody sat back down. I went over to the piano, sat down, and started playing. And the song sounded so beautiful in this big little church. It was a It just echoed through the the sanctuary and I got halfway through the song or so and I could hear in the in the audience there the sniffles start. (laughs) And, And then I noticed that I was getting some moisture down my cheeks. It was very emotional. It was the song is is very a touching kind of song. Oh, when I finished playing the song and the last notes of the song were dying away, I looked over to little Rachel in the arms of her mother and I said, from now on, This song will be called Rachel's song in her honor. And Curtis, that's how it got its name.
0: That's an amazing story there. You've had your songs played on hundreds of radio stations. Tell us what you did to be able to get that notoriety and get your songs out there. Well,
1: after I had named the song there in 1983, I was still working for AT&T, Western Electric and doing a lot of traveling. I was an IT kind of person, a technical consultant to the factories in AT&T. And one of the places that I traveled to and was doing a lot of work was Nashville, Tennessee. Well, as you know, Curtis, Nashville is called Music City, USA. And so Linda says, well, while you're in Nashville working, why don't you find a studio and get a demo recording made of Rachel's song, just something we could have to enjoy and Share it with Rachel and her family. I said, Well, okay, that's a good idea. And so one week, this was in August of 1986, I was driving around the downtown part of Nashville. And and if you've ever been around the music part of it, there's a place called Music Square. It's about two square blocks, that everything in those square blocks has to do with music studios, BMI, and ASCAP, and lots of headquarters of music companies, publishing companies. And so I was driving around there. I said, surely I can find, you know, there's hundreds of studios in Nashville. Surely I can find one that will do this. And so I was driving down a street called Roy Acuff Place. And at the end of the street was a barn looking building that had a water wheel out front. And I looked at it and I thought, this is, this is interesting. And on the side of the building, the marquee said the music mill. And so I thought, okay, this sounds encouraging. So I pulled in the parking lot and sure enough, I saw through the glass door, there was a gentleman sitting at a desk. So I went up to the door, knocked on it, and he came over, unlocked it and opened it and said, uh, George Clinton, can I help you? And I said, uh, yeah, I'm Dave Combs, I've written a little song, and I'm looking for a studio to record a demo of my song. And he invited me. He said, well, come on in. And he said, and as I went into the lobby, I noticed around the room over on the left was a life-sized picture of Glenn Campbell. And then here's a life size picture of the group, Alabama and the Forrester sisters, and there were gold records and platinum records plastered all over the wall of this lobby. And so George says, Well, this is a studio. And I felt kind of silly because it was obviously a studio that I had walked into and there wasn't anybody recording at that time. Just so happened. And so George gave me a tour of the studio. I'd never been in one. So he took me into Studio A. Big room, you could put an orchestra in that room, big grand piano over in the corner. And I was really impressed. And then he said, well, let's go in the control room, open this big, heavy door to get into the control room. And in there was this big console. It must've been, it looked like it was eight feet long. And it looked, I thought like I was in a NASA control center. You could launch a rocket from this room with all the equipment in there, had tape recorders all over the place. And it was really impressive. And so I said, George, well, this is really impressive. How how much does a place like this cost to rent? And he says, well, it's $125 an hour plus engineer. Now, remember, Curtis, this was 1986. $125 an hour was a lot of money back then. That was a whole lot more than I made per hour. And so, and he, I guess he saw how disappointed I was in the, the cost. He said, well, don't worry about it, though. He said, the fellow that owns this studio, he owns a small little studio across the street that's in a former rent house. That's tiny, tiny little building, but it's $15 an hour plus the engineer. And I said, okay, that'll, that'll work for me. And I said, well, now all I need is somebody to play my song for me. It's just an instrumental little song. I need a piano player to play it. And he thought for a second. He says, I know just the person. Let's go back over to my desk and I'll get his phone number for you. He said, his name is Gary Prim. And so he went to his Rolodex and flipped through the thing, found Gary Prem's card and wrote down Gary's phone number for me and handed it to me on a piece of paper. And I thanked him and I said, Well, I sure do appreciate it. And I left and went back to my hotel room. As soon as I got in the door, I went straight to that phone and called Gary Prem. Got his answering machine. In about 30 minutes, he called me back and he said this. Gary, can I help you? I said, Well, here is a song I've written called Rachel's song, and I'd love to have you do a demo recording of it for me if you would. He said, I'd be glad to do that. You just send me a tape recording of you playing it on the piano so I know what it sounds like and send me a lead sheet. And I said, OK, what's a lead sheet? I was showing how little I knew about the Nashville music lingo that day. So he said, oh, it's just the, it's just the notes of the melody written out and the chords that go with it. I said, Oh, well, I've got that. I just didn't know to call it a lead sheet. So when I got back home after that week of business trip, I've sent Gary the tape and the lead sheet. And and in a couple of weeks, he had arranged for us to meet at this little tiny studio across the street. It was on a Friday evening at six o'clock on August the 22nd, 1986. I never will forget that day. Gary comes in the studio. Front door, carrying his Yamaha DX7 synthesizer, and I meet him for the first time, and we just struck up a, a real friendship. He's just one of these people you instantly like, and he set up his synthesizer and got set out the piano, and I went into the control room where the engineer was setting things up, and Gary was you know warming up on the piano, and he says, "Well, I'm ready." So the engineer said, well, "I'm ready too." So he pushes the record button on the tape recorder and and it says, "We're rolling." And Gary starts playing my song. Now, remember, I have never heard my song played by anybody but me before. So you can imagine the delight and excitement of me hearing a professional piano player in a studio playing my music. And I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. Well, he got mostly through the song and then he apparently didn't like something he did. So he stopped and he said, well, let's rewind it back. Let's do that again. I can do better than that. So he did. Second time through, he played it from the beginning to the end flawlessly, not missing a single note. It was beautiful. And so he he comes into the to the control room. We listen to it and he said, yeah, that, that sounds pretty good. And I thought he was probably finished. I was pleased <laughs> if he have stopped right there. I just said, OK, I'm happy. He said, oh, no, I said I've got some ideas for uh, making this really sound special. So he said, I want to add some electric piano to the song and he was going to do something he called, I want to do some doubling. And doubling him meant he was going to play the exact same thing he had played on the acoustic piano on the keyboard of the synthesizer with an electric piano sound, note for note. And I was amazed. He put on his headset and listened to his piano part while he was playing the, the electric piano part. He, he nailed every note. And this was, there was no metronome, no beat going. It was all the feeling that he had. And he could feel that same feel with the second time through uh, with the synthesizer. Nailed it. And then he says, well, this needs some strings. I'm going to put some bottom on this. Let's put some low strings. So he got two more tracks and we started recording. He started switched switch to the string sound on his synthesizer and played some strings along with his piano part. Then he said, no, I, we need some high strings too. We need to give this some really good top to it as well. Some Really give it some ethereal kind of great sound so he did that two more tracks high strings and then the uh, middle of the song he had played three verse in the chorus three times and between the second verse and chorus and the third beginning of the third verse he changed keys in the song from c to d flat instantly and when you hear the recording you'll probably remember this from listening to it yourself curtis right in the middle of the song you kind of build up and then all of a sudden you go from a key of C right up to D flat. And that key change, along with the sounds that go with it, just raises your level of excitement about the song tremendously. And so I couldn't believe what I was hearing, you know, and, and he said, I want to put some even some horns in there, I want the horn sound. So he put that right in the middle right there where you're changing the keys. And then when you get all that done, he he said, I that's, think that's good. So he was all pleased with it. And so was I, of course. And so he was finished. I paid him his agreed upon fee and, and he left. And I stayed there with the engineer while he mixed the recording down to two track stereo. And that, that only his recording part only took about 45 minutes, less than an hour. And the mixing part of it took another 45 minutes to an hour. And he made me some cassette tapes of the recording and he, gave me my master tape that I could use to make records if I wanted to, and the two inch reel to reel tape that was recorded on as well. So I paid the engineer for the studio and him and and I left. And boy was I on Cloud Nine. I didn't even I didn't even leave the parking lot before I started playing that song. I popped that cassette in the the player in the car, sat there in the parking lot and listened to it. Couldn't believe it. And then I said, Well I better get back to the hotel. I gotta go home and and tell linda about this this is this is amazing because i had no way this is before cell phones no cell phones in the car then i had to go to the hotel to call her on a landline so i made my way back toward the hotel well if you've been in nashville and driven around there are three interstates that come together in nashville i think it's i-40 i-24 and i forget the other one there's three of them but some places where they intersect, if you're not in the correct lane on the interstate, you're not going to go where you think you're going. <laughs> You've got to be in the right lane to get off and get on where you want to go. So I was listening to the music. I'd play the cassette, rewind it, play it again, play it, rewind it, and play it again. And I did that and I apparently wasn't paying any attention to where I was. And after a while, I noticed that I had passed this same set of billboards at least twice. I had circled Nashville maybe two or three times. I finally did get to my senses and made it back to the hotel room, but I was in another world. I remember saying to myself every time I heard the song, I said, This is it. This is it. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was going to be life changing and it was important. And when I got back to that hotel room, I called Linda as fast as I could and told her about it, and I, she probably thought I'd been drinking or something because I was so excited. I probably was talking 100 miles an hour and I couldn't play it, to it for her because I had nothing to play play the music on. I was just on a telephone. All I could do is tell her about it. Well, I was after talking to her about it and tell her I'd play it when I get home. But sitting there in the hotel, I, said, I can't just sit here in the hotel with this song like this. So I said, I got to play this for somebody. <laughs> I got out and got my rental car and I went to a shopping center and I found this business called Circuit City. They sold stereos. And I went in there and I said, I found me a salesperson. I said, uh, show me your high end stereo equipment, I, your best speakers and your best players for cassette players and that kind of thing. So he, we walked over to this special room where they had the great big speakers and big sounding, expensive systems and I said, here's my play, this cassette on the on this system and and turn it up, turn it up where I can really hear it. So he did. And as soon as Rachel's song started playing, he was totally blown away with it. And all the other customers in the store stopped and turned looking around and said, Where is that music coming from? So I knew that was the first time I'd ever played it really in public for somebody else to listen to. But I saw the effect that it had on people. And and that effect still remains today, I think, with that song. And when you listen to Rachel's song on my go to my website, combsmusic.com, and right in the middle of that home page, there's a player that says play here to play, play Rachel's song and play it on your your computer. And I hope that you will agree that this this song is just a really special song. And what you're going to hear is that same original demo recording made by Gary Prim that August of 1986 has not been changed i didn't remaster it or remix it or anything that is the original demo recording and when you hear it then you will, i think really appreciate why i was so excited about my little simple song that turned out to be so beautifully played and arranged
0: by gary prim well you you started marketing your music to gift shops tell us how and why you did that and, and how you chose the gift shops that you markets are great music too well
1: as you can imagine once i got the song recorded and played on the radio i did, did get it played on fm easy listening stations around the country and i had the same kind of reception from people that heard it from the radio they all loved it and wanted wanted to buy a copy of it and i i really could not i didn't have any success selling my music through the regular record stores i approached several of them and And I didn't get anywhere. Some of them were just almost rude to me when they hear that I wanted to have them carry my little simple album in their store. I didn't have the name of a Michael Jackson or the big recording artist. They'd never heard of Dave Combs and what music I had. They could have cared less. All they wanted to do was sell something that was being promoted by the big record companies. So I was pretty disappointed that uh, I didn't wasn't successful that way. But I didn't give up. Now, this is the entrepreneurial don't give up, keep keep at it and and just never, never give up attitude. So I thought there's got to be a way. And the way that ended up being sold through gift shops was not really my doing. I was working at AT&T in Bethesda, Maryland, and a lady right behind me in the office right behind me, uh, had a friend, her best friend, owned a gift shop in Old Town, Alexandria. Now, those of you that have been to Old Town, Alexandria, know that it's a wonderful tourist town, wonderful shops and restaurants. And you can walk along the river, river walk. And it's just a beautiful place to visit. Well, this lady that owned the shop, her name was Jane. And the shop's name was America. And she sold everything red, white and blue and patriotic. She played John Philip Sousa music throughout the store, had a great sound system in the store, and but it was a patriotic kind of store. Well, my friend gave Jane one of my CDs of Rachel's song. And it's funny, you know, she had a five CD changer in her, in her store that she was playing from. And of course, she put mine in there as one of the five. And so here she was playing John Philip Sousa and all this patriotic music. And then here would come Rachel's song. <laughs> Quite a contrast to this really pompous and very upbeat uh, patriotic music. And then here's this psalm calm, soothing, relaxing. Rachel song starts playing. And what happened was every time Rachel's song would start playing, the customers in her store would come over to the counter and say, Jane, what is that music you're playing? Do you have it for sale? Of course, she didn't. All she had was just that one copy. So the next thing I know, I get a phone call from Jane, and she says, Dave, you got to help me out. Uh, this song, rec- record of yours, the CD of Rachel's song is extremely popular. Everybody wants to buy a copy. Can you sell me some at wholesale? I had not sold any of my music yet at wholesale. I didn't even know how, what wholesale price to put on it. So Jane and I negotiated a wholesale price that was fair to both of us. And so I said, okay. And she said, well, can you bring me some tonight? And I said, well, yeah, sure. So I, Linda and I, when I got home, I boxed up a box of cassette tapes and CDs. And, mm-hmm. and we went down and drove down to Old Town Alexandria and took them to her shop. She was thrilled to get them. And so we, little did we know what was going to happen next. And we were just you know, following our leads and, and doing what? Taking action when somebody wants something done. And so two or three late days later, I get another phone call from Jane and she says, Dave, you got to help me out again. Those are all gone. I need some more. And how about this time? Send me twice as many as you did before. And can you bring them tonight? So we'd load up a box of music and take it down to Old Town Alexandria. And, you know, we made that trip to Alexandria every week to deliver Jane a box of CDs and tapes for over a year. And she sold thousands of that one album in that year's time. And that was the beginning when I realized that you know she was selling tons of my music. And I made I had my MBA from Wake Forest University and so I'm an analytical kind of person, I'm a business person at heart. And so I wanted to do an analysis of what had happened here. Created a spreadsheet. And I put on that column one of the spreadsheet, I put, you know, this tapes and CDs that I'd sold to her, how many she had sold, how much they cost me per cassette, tape, and CD. And then I multiplied everything out and arrived at gross profit for that store. And, you know, each week I knew how much she would sold. And I said, well, in a year's time, you know, she's sold this many. And bottom line was that was a tremendous number, amazing number at the bottom profit for that one little shop. And I thought, well, maybe this is the model I need. So what if we had one gift shop like hers in every state, just 50 of them? I'm not going to get greedy and go to the thousands. Let's just say 50 gift shops like that around the country. I made me a column in my spreadsheet, column one times 50. And you look at the bottom line number at the gross profit from that. Wow, now that's an interesting number. And I said, well, what if I just had five, five gift shops? Surely there's five little tourist Towns in each state around the country, and so 250 total in the whole country. So I made column three is the column one times 250. And when you multiplied all that out, the gross profit at the bottom, number at the bottom, I said, Linda, you got to see this. Come here, quick. And I pointed out to her that that bottom line number with the 250 gift shops was about twice what I was making at AT AT&T and then Curtis when the light bulb went off and I decided you know what I've got to do I've got to get busy and find this other bunches of gift shops I've got to take her little gift shop model and I've got to duplicate that as many times as I possibly can and I did that for weeks and weeks and weeks and i made phone calls on the weekends to every tourist town I could find and and I really Was Initially, I didn't even start calling tourist towns. I was just calling any town that had gift shops in it. I'd go to the Library of Congress and make a copy of the Yellow Pages for a town and of the gift shops. And so I'd start calling from A to Z all the gift shops in that town. And I would just simply ask them, do you sell any tapes of the music you play in your store?" And that was a simple question and they would either say no we don't even play music and i would say thank you very much and goodbye and hang up or they would say yes we play music but we don't sell it and then i would launch into a a little pitch of saying well do people ever ask you about the music that you're playing in your store and some of them would say well yeah they surely do and i said what well, have you ever thought about selling that music and they said well no i haven't but it's a probably good idea So I would say, well, if I send you some of my music, would you consider it? And I would get a prospect out of that. And then some occasionally I would find a gift shop that was already selling the music that they played very, very rarely back then. And I would have to make 30 phone calls just to get one prospect. Most of them were no, we don't play music in our shop. No, we don't sell it, not interested. And so you have to get as an entrepreneur used to people telling you no but you don't let it get you down. You say, well, I'm just going on to the next. Eventually, I'm going to get a yes. I know it. And so you just keep at it. Keep prospecting. And I did. But one out of 30 was wearing me out. I would call on Saturday morning. I was still working at AT&T. And so I had to do this in the evenings and on weekends. And on Saturdays and Sundays, I was making phone calls from 10 in the morning when the gift shops opened up till about 6 at night when my voice kind of gave out. And one in 30 was wearing me out. So I, th- I thought there's got to be a better way. And I got to thinking about where I had had the most success was in tourist towns. Now, if you stop and think about what is what makes up a tourist town, tourist towns are places where they get a whole a crowd of new visitors and customers, tourists almost every day. There's a new crowd of people coming through, a new set of customers. And so they can say, if they have a hot item, they don't have to carry a thousand different items. They just have to have one or two or three really hot items. And the new crowd's coming in today, they'll buy it. And a new one tomorrow, they'll buy it. Same item. Well, that was true with my music. I didn't have but one album at that time. All I had was Rachel's song. Well, if you're going to try to sell one item... One customer is only going to buy it once normally. So you need new customers every day. Well, that's the definition of a tourist town gift shop. You have new customers. And so I needed to know where are all the gift shops? I mean, where are all the tourist towns in the United States? I knew where they were in North Carolina and Maryland and Virginia and places I had traveled to. But other than that, I didn't have a clue where these gift tourist towns were. But again, my analytical side of my brain kicked in and said, "Okay, I think you can use some information and data to, to tell you where these places are. So I knew I found out one thing I could purchase back then was the mailing list for gift shops in the entire country. The Yellow Pages Telephone Folks book would sell a list of all the gift shops in the country to me on a computer printout. I think I paid about two hundred dollars for it. It was very expensive, but well worth it. There were seventy five thousand gift shops in the entire country. And I bought that entire mailing list and it was alphabetical within town, within town and city, within state. And then I thought, well, okay, I've got that piece of information. And then what I did was I went through the printout and for every town, I simply counted how many gift shops are in this town. Well, like in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, you count down through, well, there's 75 gift shops in Gatlinburg. A tiny little town, but it's got 75 gift shops. Well, the population of Gatlinburg is not that great. And so you know that the customers are coming from outside of town. So I said, "Well, well, what I need to know is for all these towns, and I've counted up the gift shops, what's the population? So I found another place to get the data. It was at the public library. They had a book called The Marketing Atlas. It was a great big, thick, hardbound bound book it was about three, two and a half feet long, two feet wide, three inches thick, weighed about 12 pounds, had maps. And it had every crossword in the entire country listed with their population and a few other pieces of data from the census. So then I had a book that I could look up The population of all these little towns and all the states and places i had no clue where they were or anything and so i made me another spreadsheet i think i live off of spreadsheets made a spreadsheet that had you know the the name of the town the state in the town and and how many gift shops were in that town and then i went to my marketing atlas what's the population put that in another cell in the spreadsheet and then i had did that for all of those towns in my printout and I took a long time with that many gift shops to count them up and look up all those population numbers. I did it, though, put it in my spreadsheet. And then I had the spreadsheet calculate the ratio of the gift shops per population. So you could see how many how many people supported a, a gift shop in a town and the population per gift shop was a number that the lower the number, the, uh, the more likely it was a tourist town. And so that when you sorted the database for like for North Carolina, you sorted Blowing Rock, North Carolina, which is a great little tourist town, right at the top of the list. Gatlinburg, Tennessee, right at the top of the list. Ellicott City, Maryland, pretty close to the top of the list in Maryland. So it was like filter that allowed you to Focus in on where you want to market and, and filter, I guess, is a good word, because most of us are used to using filters when we're searching for something on the Internet. Well, I, the Internet hadn't even been invented when I was doing this, but that's that's the process that I went through. Well, now I had a list of all the tourist towns in the entire country, every state. It didn't matter whether I'd ever been there or not. The ones that was were top of the list in Kansas or Minnesota or. Wherever you are, it's, it's, it was right there. So then I started calling only those gift shops from printout list. And my hit rate on my prospecting went from one in 30 to one in five. Now that is kicking it in high gear. So instead of having just a handful of prospects at the end of the weekend, I'd have well over a hundred prospects that I'd have to put packages together and mail them out. And, you know, almost all of those people that I sent music to became my customers. Eventually ended up with over 1,000 gift shops across the entire country. And I was able to quit my job in 1992 and do my music full time, selling my music through the gift shops. And then by then, I also had a direct mailing list of fans that had contacted me. And those eventually numbered well over 25,000 fans that had written to me that, And then I eventually heard from 50,000 people with notes about my music. So that's kind of a long story, but I think it's it kind of hangs together with the entrepreneurial aspect of how do you start a business? How do you get it out there? And how do
0: you expand and and grow your business? Yes, that is definitely great and and definitely an inspirational story for people. Let's talk about your article in... Guide Post magazine. Tell us about that.
1: This was it was one of those things where I was I was sitting in my office at home, answering the phone this one day. And I had an office manager, Betsy, that worked for me. And she would answer the phone most of the time. But this particular time I answered the phone. It was my somebody calling my 800 number, usually to want to order some music. And this time I answered the phone. And the lady on the other end of the line was Roberta Messner. And she was telling me about my music and how much it meant to her and how how that she had gone through so many surgeries because of a particular condition that she has where it affects your skin. And it the I think they call it elephantitis or something. It's it's really a bizarre, gross disease that's so painful and disfiguring. And she said that the pain of these surgeries was just almost overwhelming. And she said, your music, Rachel's song in particular, was so soothing and helped her through the pain of, of her illness and to get through this surgery recovery. And she was so appreciative. And then she was also very inquisitive. And she says, tell me about, she's kind of like you, she said, tell me about this thing of how did you write Rachel's song and, and so forth and began telling her some of my stories and and pretty soon she says, wow, well, she said, I must tell you that I am a writer for Guideposts magazine. I said, oh, really? Fantastic. She said, I love your story. And I think it would be something that the editors at Guideposts magazine would love to print. You know, it's a it's a kind of a little feel-good story kind of magazine. All of them are inspirational stories. And so she said, Let me, if you, with your permission, I'd like to pitch your story to Guideposts. I said, well, sure, have at it. So she arranged to call me back later to do a little more extensive interviewing so she could you know, write up the story a little bit better. And she called me back after that and said, they're interested. They want to do it. I said, OK, well, let's do this thing. So she was a she ghost writ, She ghost wrote. I don't know if that's the right language. She is a ghostwriter. And she wrote the story for me because it's published under my name. But she was the one that actually initially wrote it for me. And it's called Two Part Harmony. And it was in the September '94 issue of of Guidepost Magazine, and I I didn't know have any idea what was going to happen from this because I knew that this was a very popular magazine and it had a circulation of about three million people. That's a big circulation, and fortunately, the magazine in the back of it put a a section. Were that basically it's it's called family room on on the one I'm in this one. They put a little blurb about the people that write the articles. And if you want to get a hold of this person, here's their address and here's their phone number and that kind of thing. So they put my picture in a little short bio in the back of the magazine and with my phone number and email address and my physical address. And so the next thing I know, my phone starts ringing off the hook and as soon as that magazine hits the street. I mean, it rang and rang and rang. You could put your hand on the receiver and pick it up and somebody was on the phone. It was that many people calling. And I had to hire two people just to help me answer the phone. And a couple of days later, my mailman rang the front doorbell and I went to the door and there he stood with this big canvas bag that was too heavy for him to pick up probably weighed close to 100 pounds, full of mail. And he looks at me and he says, Dave, what in the world have you done? (laughs) And I said, well, I just wrote this little article in Guidepost magazine. And he said, well, everybody's writing to you about it, apparently. And Linda and I stayed up all night that night just zipping open those envelopes so we could pull the contents out and read them later. It took us till six o'clock in the morning to just finish opening the mail that night well that was amazing i heard from over ten thousand people in less than two weeks and you talk about the power of public publicity that is a, <laughs> that nailed it for me i thought well there's no amount of advertising could have ever generated this kind of response it's it's the publicity from wonderful publications or programs that people listen to or read about that's worth where you're you're going to succeed as a as a business person, if you can get some really good publicity about what you're doing and even for podcasts or writing a book or writing music or anything that you're doing, get some people to write up a good story about you in the local newspaper or a magazine somewhere if you can. And I think you'll be surprised what those little popular and positive articles and, and stories can do for you.
0: Absolutely. Tell us about the MOVED digital streaming. What has that done for your music?
1: Well, it was kind of worrisome to start with. Back in the late 90s, there was a digital group came along called Napster. You may remember that. They were the group that was basically taking people's recordings and making copies of them digitally and downloading them, allowing anybody to download them for free. So suddenly, instead of people buying your music, they were going to Napster and it's got the right name. It's their they're crookster, I think, should have been the, their name. They were stealing our intellectual property. And so suddenly our music that we were selling a CD for $14, $15, people, the young folks were looking out and saying, well, why do I want to pay $15 when I can go to Napster and get it for free? Well, fortunately, the legal system jumped in. It took them a long time to do it, but they jumped in and stopped that. But the damage had already been done. The the habits of the young people listening to music had moved from the physical CDs and cassette tapes. Cassette tapes were about out gone anyway. But they were moving to the digital world. They wanted to download their music and put it on their iPods and iPads and all the different devices that they could digitally play the music. And they were doing it for free. And, you know, you it's, it's a pretty l- hard business model to make a living giving something away for free. So it was musicians were really hurt really badly by this. Sales of music just plummeted. And then fortunately, along came Apple with the iTunes business where they would down, let you purchase a download of a song for 99 cents. Well, that basically got at least the world back into the habit of paying something for the music that they were listening to. So we were moving from the physical music sales of CDs and records and cassette tapes into downloading of music. And that took off pretty well. And then there were other other companies that jumped on board and the digital downloading business took off. And then shortly thereafter, you you had people like Pandora that came along to play play this music stream it so that you could have a you log on to Pandora and you'd say, I want to play some Gary Prim music and they would next thing, you know, on the app, there would come one of my songs and then right behind it would be somebody else's song that sounded a little bit like it. But so the streaming business kind of took off and it has continued. I think it's pretty much overtaken the downloading portions part of the music at this point. And fortunately, i'm an i.t kind of person i'm a computer programming as my beginning in life and so things technical kind of always appealed to me and i was pretty much on top of it i had my own website as soon in 1995 as i learned about what the world wide web was all about and and so i've continued to jump on board with the digital aspects of the music as it came available I've got my music. Uh, it's available for download in all of the digital downloading platforms and, and the streaming of my music is my music is now streamed millions of times around the world on the multiple platforms that it's available on, like iHeartRadio and Spotify and Apple Music, Amazon Music. There's, it's on and on. There's tons of places that stream music, and it's also on, on YouTube. Now I have YouTube videos that have my music and my photography combined together uh, to make a music video. And so I've, I've, I hopefully have stayed on board the train that was leaving the station back in the physical days to the digital world, and uh, and today my goal is to take this platform, like we're on today with podcasts, and tell people about my music and my, my stories, and hopefully they'll. Look up my book on Amazon and hopefully read it. It's available on paperback and audio book and in Kindle ebook. And uh, if you want to listen to me read it, I narrated the whole book. You can hear me read it for eight hours. It took me about 30 hours to record it. That was quite a task. I'd never done that before. But you can hear me read my book to you from purchasing it on Amazon Audible. And so I've tried to stay with the digital world and and to try to spread the word around the world about my music and encourage people to read about it and, and certainly to go and listen to it. You can go to my website and right there in the middle of the page say play Rachel's song and you can hear it for yourself and click on the book and go to Amazon and buy it. Or you can click on the CD and go over and to Amazon and buy or download or stream that. So
0: it's, I've tried to stay current with my
1: digital capabilities as well.
0: Briefly tell us about your book and, and any upcoming projects that you're working on that people need to know about.
1: Well the the main project that I'm working on now is exactly what we're doing right now is trying to spread the word about my music and my book through the medium of of podcasts. And I've really enjoyed the many hosts that I've gotten to meet all the way all around the world, literally. And the reception from my music, really blessed that it still touches people's hearts and souls when they listen to it. It's hopefully a timeless piece of music, and hopefully all of my music is. If people ask me, well, what's what's your legacy going to be? Well, I think my legacy is my music. Hopefully 200 years from now, people will still tune in and, and play Rachel's song on some fancy stereo system that's 200 years from now fancy. And we'll, that's going to be hopefully my legacy to... My stories will be written down in my book and my music will hopefully
0: continue to be played and enjoyed by people all over the world. All right, well, you know, give out your full contact information, the social media links, the website, and close us out with some final thoughts.
1: Well, my, again, my website is it's just com. And all my connections for Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube and are on that on my the bottom page of my website. So it's there's not you don't have to do a whole lot of hunting to find me. Just go to my website and you'll see a place place to start. It's pretty simple to to navigate and you'll find some interviews that I've done with people like Jack Canfield, who wrote the forward to my book. He does an interview for me on my that I've posted on my website and And then there's there's, I have sheet music as well. For those of your audience, play the piano or play a keyboard. I have transcribed my music on 11 of my albums so that they can play the music that I've recorded note for note. You can play the exact same notes that Gary Prim played in the studio from my sheet music. And you can find the books on Amazon.com. And then there's a site called Sheet Music Plus where you can instantly purchase the sheet music. Oh, there's about 170 some songs of mine that you can buy the, instantly buy the sheet music and download the PDF and start playing it right now. So it's sheet music plus. And uh, my closing thoughts are that I want to, first of all, thank you, Curtis, for the the honor of being on your podcast. It's been a pleasure to to talk with you and to be able to pass on these thoughts and stories to your audience and i hope that they enjoy it and and i would love to hear from them my email is dave at combsmusic.com and i'd love to hear from you check me check me out
0: and I answer all the emails well i definitely appreciate having you on the show I, I could talk to you at night and listen to your stories and listeners please follow rate review share these wonderful stories and also share Rachel's song to every every person that you know. Combsmusic.com. Go check him out. And also, Android listeners, go to the Google Play Store and download the "Living the Dream" with Curveball podcast. Dave Combs, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you, Curtis. It's been my pleasure.
0: For more information on the "Living the Dream" podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream dream.